Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The scriptural God is not the God of a statue, a temple, a city, or a mountain, but the God of a story. For those who submit to this God as their Heavenly Father, it is forbidden to stray outside His narrative in any thought, word, or deed that pertains to Him. In life, this means we follow His precepts without adding our words to His or using His words to justify ours. In the act of hearing his story, it means hearing carefully and literally free of outside influence. Inside the confines of Luke chapter 1, you might be surprised where the Spirit takes you. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verses 42 to 43. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 440 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we demonstrated the importance of paying close attention to the text. When we first read about the birth of John the Baptist, both Richard and I were excited about the role of the Holy Spirit in the conception of John the Baptist and how little theologians say about the birth of John the Baptist because everyone skips ahead to the birth of Jesus Christ and the role of the Spirit in the birth of the Messiah. But in doing so, we made the mistake of not paying close enough attention to the specific locality of the Spirit. The Spirit rested not on Elizabeth but on John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. And this proved to be critical in Luke's presentation of the interplay between the communities that these two women represent in the story. Elizabeth represents the Jerusalemite community, and Mary represents the Pauline community. The Spirit overshadows and dwells within the Pauline church, and it is the Pauline church that is bringing the Spirit to Elizabeth, to the Jerusalemite church. The Spirit rests and dwells in John the Baptist. The Spirit is upon John the Baptist, the prophet who brings destruction to the temple. And we've said many times, and we've talked at length in other episodes, about the interconnection within the broader narrative arc of the New Testament between the Apostle Paul and John the Baptist literarily. So it is significant and easily missed if you are not paying close attention to the text. And this story 
of these two communities continues to play out as we hear more about the interchange between Mary and Elizabeth. Tracking the Holy Spirit through here is revelatory to understand how this text works, how the promise is that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Mary comes to John's mother while she's pregnant with him, speaks to her, greets her, and she is filled with the Holy Spirit. The way that the Holy Spirit tracks through this is amazing if you're paying attention to these little details because, you know, we pray and we're just like, you know, it's everywhere and fills all things. In Luke chapter 1, it's not everywhere and filling all things. It can be anywhere, but it isn't everywhere. It goes from specific locale to specific locale. We used to talk about Ezekiel. It isn't that God is everywhere. He's just in a chariot in the clouds that can be anywhere instantaneously, right? This is how God functions. God's not just this cloud that covers everything all the time. If he is a cloud, he's a cloud on one tent. He's one pillar of cloud. That's the only time he's a cloud. If God is present, he isn't present. He's here or he's there. And the Holy Spirit is tracking through this chapter as this unspeaking character that inspires others to speak. And that's what's beautiful about this. The fact that Mary comes to Elizabeth before Elizabeth speaks, the fact that Elizabeth speaks by the Holy Spirit legitimizes her words because by speaking by the Holy Spirit, they're in concert with the word of Scripture. It's a stamp of approval. Now, don't forget, Elizabeth is in the story too. That doesn't mean that if somebody says something legitimate, then we know it was the Holy Spirit. I don't know anything about that. All I'm saying is that Elizabeth's words in the story are legitimized because she is encountering the Holy Spirit in the story. I don't want to talk about anybody's encounter with the Holy Spirit because I'm not talking to people in the story. Those are the only people I'm caring about right now. In the story, the character is filled with the Holy Spirit, and thereby she speaks correctly. The Holy Spirit means that the words are in concert with the rest of Scripture. This is what's important. So, as you said, Father, we have the two communities, and this is where the truth, I'm playing with that word, she's sharing the truth with Elizabeth. And truth is not a system of doctrines or a bunch of thought or anything like this. It's simply this word, which is eternal, in that we have this story that existed before us and is going to exist after us. The story is its own story. Don't try to take it out of context. Don't try to take one example out and talk about how does the Holy Spirit work in my life. No, 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 please, please don't talk about how the Holy Spirit works on your life based on Luke chapter 1. Don't do it, please, because the Holy Spirit functions specifically in chapter 1, and those who have ears to hear hear how the Holy Spirit functions. You have to stay locked in the story. I am thankful for your point, Rich. And that's, in fact, how Eastern Orthodox liturgy works. That's what's helpful about liturgy, this mechanism of the anamnesis. You have it classically in Byzantine prayer. The calling to remembrance of the behavior, the action of God in Scripture, 
liturgy doesn't let you come out of Scripture to talk about God's actions today. Liturgy puts you into the story of Scripture where you remember what God did in the story. It's all over the liturgy of Basil, and by extension, the liturgy of Chrysostom, but less so. It's very clear in Basil's liturgy. You keep remembering all of God's actions in the story because it is God's actions in the story that are the reference. And if you remember those actions, then the scriptural God is functional in the liturgy, not the God that you create outside the boundaries of scripture, which is what you do when you talk about the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not the scriptural God, it's the Holy Spirit you create, which is very dangerous. You have to confine yourself or you are making your own God. There is an intrinsic value to structured prayer because it locks you in and locks you down. If there's a value, it's that it prevents you from being imaginative. It prevents you from being spontaneous. All this business about being spontaneous and being sincere in your prayer is silly and problematic. The best thing to do is just read the Psalms and say the Lord's Prayer. But if you're going to go beyond that, your prayer should prevent you from doing anything but remembering the content of Scripture, which is the value, once again, of this liturgical mechanism of the anomnesis. Do not worry about asking God for anything. Go back and rehear Matthew. Come on. Limit yourself to what happens between Bereshit, Bara, Elohim, and the end of Revelation. That's it. So in verse 41, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. In verse 42, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary, who represents the Pauline church, is bringing the gospel to the Jerusalemite church. And Elizabeth's reaction is to proclaim and to affirm that Mary is blessed among women, among communities, and the fruit of her womb is blessed. And of course, the word in Greek is evlohimeni. Two blessings come. The blessing of Mary among women, because she's the one to whom Gabriel came and who was made pregnant in this miraculous way. And second, that fruit itself is miraculous and is blessed. Miraculous, that's my word. That's Richard Benton's word. Blessed is the word of Elizabeth when she says that both Mary and the fruit are blessed. Now, it's fruit. It doesn't say Jesus. It says the fruit of your womb. It's not talking about the person. It's talking about the fruit. Mary heard blessing one. Mary was made pregnant with this fruit, blessing two. So it's the hearing and the fruit that's born as a result. This is what Elizabeth is reacting to, officially stamped and approved by the Holy Spirit. These words of blessing focus our attention on Mary and the fruit. And I'm going to keep saying fruit because I don't want to say Jesus because Jesus isn't even named yet. Jesus doesn't have a name. This 
function of the fruit already, the fruit of the womb. And we've had womb, I haven't counted, but womb has been repeated so many times already, and we're only halfway through the chapter. Wombs are very important here. Significant contrast with Matthew, where it's man, 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 man. Here it's womb, 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 womb. When you think of it from a Hebrew point of view, the clear etymological connection between womb and mercy, it gives you that extra little piece there if you're hearing the Greek with a Hebrew accent. So the salutation, the greeting that comes from this blessed one with the blessed fruit is what inspires Elizabeth to speak. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Verse 43, in one sense, parallels Mary's question, but it's different in character and tone. Mary, when she hears the news of God's instruction, of God's words, the words of Elohim by the mouth of Gabriel, God's young champion, asks the rational question, how on earth am I going to have a baby without a human seed? A logical question that betrays initially a disbelief, a distrust in the words of Elohim, to which Mary ultimately submits and in which she places her trust as the Pauline church. But here, Elizabeth is asking the question, how is it? How is it? Am I worthy? How is it that my Lord would come to me. This question is beautiful because it reflects the attitude of John the Baptist toward the Messiah. Now that Mary has brought the Spirit to Elizabeth, Elizabeth's attitude has been corrected, and now her disposition toward the gospel reflects the disposition that is heralded by John the Baptist who puts himself underneath the one whom he proclaims in the gospel. It's fabulous. And it cannot be lost, again, within the flow of chapter 1 of Luke, that this question comes paired with Mary's question. These women are receiving news, and they're saying, how? How can this be? But Elizabeth's question is an upgrade. It's an improvement because the spirit in Luke is at work because Mary submitted to the words of instruction, the words of command. Remember, law, instruction, Torah, it's the same word. You think there's a difference because you are a Greek philosopher. You are a theologian. You think that instruction is unto contemplation. But if you're scripturalized, you know that the words of Elohim are instruction, which is one and the same with commandment, because you are given instruction in order to act, which is why Mary diligently, <laughs> we talked about this, sometimes translated as haste. We're not going to go back into that right now. But Mary diligently and purposefully, upon placing her trust in those words, went to go preach to her cousin. 
And this is the reaction of Elizabeth now overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. This is how the text works. This phrase that she begins with, Kepothemi tuto, and where is this coming from to me? It's as if she is accepting this royal visitor, you know, the mother of my Lord. This is like speaking to the queen mother, like, why would you grace my home with a visit? This is how she's speaking. But the beauty of the image is she speaking to her little cousin? Don't forget, Elizabeth is past the age of bearing women, and Mary's not even married yet. Her little cousin comes and says, how could this happen? It is her junior, but because of the Holy Spirit, she recognizes that the fruit of the womb comes because she is the mother of my Lord. That's how you address the queen mother. She's not married. She's a young woman. And it's a very odd way you would address somebody like this, which already we should start entering into the oddity and the way that the story is going to mess with our expectations, just like it messed with our expectations about what the Holy Spirit is or does and all that kind of thing, what the blessing is and does and all that kind of thing. But also that an older cousin would talk to a much younger cousin like this, her baby cousin. We talked about this quite a bit even in Mark, how the book is constantly trying to undermine expectations. It is not a father begat a son, begat a son, begat a son, begat a son. This is womb, 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 womb. So we're tracking the women, we're tracking an elder inclining to a younger, got two miraculous conceptions. Everything is thrown up in the air right here, only halfway through this chapter. So let's keep track of where the womb goes, where the Holy Spirit goes, where the older and the younger goes, where the mothers as opposed to fathers go, where the country and the open spaces compared to the city and the temple go, as you were mentioning, Father. All this together, it's supposed to be decentering for us and disorienting for us so that we can open our ears better to hear what the story is saying. It's clear that Luke is anti-patriarchal, anti-institutional, anti-Jerusalem. But one cannot impose a contemporary ideology on the text. We spent lots of time earlier in this episode explaining that you need to stay inside. You are locked inside the narrative. So you cannot hear this point that we're going from womb to womb, that it's not a patronymic genealogy. You cannot hear this point and then say, aha, this is a feminist story. It's not a feminist story. It's not a story about these women. These women are not the heroines of the story. If you play that game, you are stepping outside the narrative so that you can make a different narrative in which you are the protagonist and the star and therefore the god or goddess of your own postmodern story. This whole business of your narrative and my narrative, Father Paul has been talking a lot about it on his podcast. The reason it's a problem for scripture is that the scriptural God is not the God of a statue. He's not the God of a temple. He's not the God of a mountain. He's not the God of a locality. He is the God of a story. So if you fashion your own story in which we all know you are naturally the star 
as the saying goes, everyone is the star of their own story, their own narrative, then you have written your own scripture and you have made yourself your own God. That is why ultimately all the characters in scripture are all problematic. The only character that is not problematic is God, who is both the patriarch and the mother in the story. And it has nothing to do with gender. So in the destruction of the temple and the dismantling of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the priesthood in chapter 1 of Luke, do not kid yourself. Do not kid yourself. We are still dealing with a patriarch and a king and a priest. But his throne is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. He is the father of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. He is the one who provides the Zerah. That is the point. There is definitely a patriarch in the story. It's just not one of us. And it has nothing, once again, to do with gender. Stop thinking about this like a confused teenager from 2022. Just turn CNN and Fox News off and stop reading your blogs. Just deal with Luke chapter 1. And then you'll understand the beauty of the point you just made, Richard, that we're going from womb to womb. It's breathtaking. It's much more beautiful than contemporary ideology. Why do I say that? Because the people that want to make it about contemporary ideology will still go and build a building and put the name of their ideology on a sign and slap it on the door, which is still patriarchy. You're still not hearing scripture. You're just putting lipstick on patriarchy, which is no good for anyone and helps nothing because you're not hearing what God is teaching in his story. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.